Tips for Empirical Alignment Research by Ethan Perez Cross-posted from the AI Alignment Forum May contain more technical jargon than usual. TLDR I've collected some tips for research that I've given to other people and or used myself, which have sped things up and helped put people in the right general mindset for empirical AI alignment research. Some of these are opinionated takes, also around what has helped me. Researchers can be successful in different ways, but I still stand by the tips here as a reasonable default. Heading. What success generally looks like. Here, I've included specific criteria that strong collaborators of mine tend to meet, with rough weightings on the importance, as a rough north star for people who collaborate with me, especially if you're new to research. These criteria are for the specific kind of research I do, highly experimental LLM alignment research, excluding interpretability. Some examples of research areas where this applies are for example scalable oversight, adversarial robustness, chain of thought faithfulness, process-based oversight, and model organisms of misalignment. The exact weighting will also vary heavily depending on what role you're serving on the team or project. For example, I'd probably upweight criteria where you're differentially strong or differentially contributing on the team, since I generally guide people towards working on things that line up with their skills. For more junior collaborators, for example, first time doing a research project, where I've scoped out the project, this means I generally weigh execution-focused criteria more than direction-setting criteria, since here I'm often the person doing the direction-setting. Also, some of the criteria as outlined below are a really high bar, and for example I only recently started to meet them myself after five years of doing research and or I don't meet other criteria myself, this is mainly written to be a north star for targets to aim for. That said, I think most people can get to a good to great spot on these criteria with 6 to 18 months of trying, and I don't currently think that many of these criteria are particularly talent brains bottlenecked versus just doing a lot of deliberate practice and working to get better on these criteria. I was actively bad at some of the criteria below like implementation speed even roughly 6 months into me doing research, but improved a lot since then with practice. With that context, here are the rough success criteria I'd outline. Here's a list of bullet points. 70% getting ideas to work quickly. 45% implementation speed. Able to quickly implement a well-scoped idea. An example of doing really well here is if we talk about an idea one day and decide it's exciting or worth doing, and you tell me the next day whether it worked. Able to run a high volume of experiments. You're doing really well here if it's hard for your supervisor to keep up with the volume of the experiments or results you're showing. 30M or even 60M weekly one-to-one -one meetings should feel like not long enough to discuss all of the results you have, and you have to filter what we discuss in our weekly meetings to just the most important and decision-relevant results. If some experiments take a while to run, you're running a lot of other project-relevant experiments in parallel or implementing the next experiment, exceptions. The experiments you're running take more than overnight 18h to run and there's no way to design them to be shorter. All the experiments are very implementation heavy. Able to design a minimal experiment to test a mid a high level idea. You run experiments in a way such that you'll rarely compute or experiment time bottlenecked, especially early in a project, and your experiments are designed to be easy or quick to implement. You trade off code quality and implementation speed in the best way for long run productivity. You bias heavily towards speed in general, except when you notice the project is significantly slowed down by a lack of code quality or good tooling, 
in which case you're able to speed up the project by making relevant code improvements. Noticing when you're going slowly and quickly and shamelessly asking for help. 25% Ability to get things to work. Things just work when you implement them and run them. If you're trying to get a number to go up, that number goes up. After iterating, your method is the SOTA method. You suggest and choose good next steps fairly independently in between weekly meetings. If I'm supervising your project and we don't chat between weekly meetings, I'd strongly endorse the decisions you made throughout the week, around what things to try. You'll have tried great ideas that I hadn't thought of, because you're spending more time thinking about the problem and looking at results. You diagnose why something's not working and make fixes to get things to work. You're able to get ideas working that other people couldn't, by being effective at coming up with good ideas for quick things to try, predicting which ones will work, and or trying lots of ideas. 20% Driving the project direction. 10% Medium or low level, day to day direction. Knowing and determining well motivated research questions are important to answer, and prioritizing, designing experiments to answer those questions. Making good decisions about what approach to take, evaluation metrics, etc. Running the right version of an experiment the first time. Effective at working independently, for example, one H a week meeting plus Slack DMs. Tags are sufficient to keep you on track and ensure you're doing maximally valuable work. Noticing when you're not sure you're tackling the most important research questions or not sure about the next step and quickly asking for help. In our weekly meetings, you proactively propose suggest great next steps for what we should do the next week, with a good prioritization of those steps. The next steps you propose are better than what I'd suggest, and I basically just give you a thumbs up each week, or fairly minor feedback. 10% High level a conceptual direction. Able to independently determine what research directions are important to pursue, either by 1. Proactively sourcing ideas from others, including those not on our project, and filtering them for quality or importance, tractability, or 2. Figuring out what seems important based on your own ideas or reading experiments. Noticing when we could probably answer a more important research question or when we're somewhat lost in direction. Then taking the initiative to deconfuse us and for example write a doc, lead a discussion, have a one-to-one -one chat with other team members, or organize a meeting with external discussion to unblock us. You're able to spot great project ideas, and, even better, just got for it, try it out without asking, and show a working prototype, effectively de-risking new ideas or directions on your own. 5% Communicating ideas clearly your Slack messages or plots and live presentations or discussions of results are clear and easy to understand. It takes very little time to process information you send over Slack, and a minimal number of back and forths to understand the results, separate from discussing their implications. You find that I and other project supervisors are giving helpful or very helpful feedback during our weekly meetings. 5% Other it varies by person, but includes things like you're a great teammate, for example helping others out where you notice good opportunities, taking initiative to improve things that you see could be improved, do what needs to get done on the project even if the work isn't as exciting, finding great collaborators for the project. You're easy to manage. Not necessarily in terms of time needed but along other axes. How receptive you are to feedback, how much emotional energy you add versus. Require from members of the team or me in our interactions, whether you are transparent or communicative about issues you're facing, whether we have a high trust relationship where it's easy to discuss various topics. 
you're great at noticing and calling out room for improvement, for example in how we're working together, things I could be doing better, ways our team could be coordinating better. That's the end of the list. Heading. Tactical research tips and approach. For highly empirical research, it's critical to get quick feedback and iterate on ideas rapidly. Jacob Steinhardt has a great blog post describing that a really good strategy for doing research is to reduce uncertainty at the fastest possible rate. With language model and alignment research, you can often reduce uncertainty really quickly, as little as a single message to GPT-4 on your phone or Claude in Slack. This can be a huge win over for example launching a large training run or set of API calls to get back results, and means you can gain 1 plus orders of magnitude more information, per unit time, about what will work well just by being careful to de-risk ideas in the quickest way possible. Most of the ideas in this doc are focused around this idea, and I'm not discussing project selection which is also important but orthogonal to the details below on how to do research. Heading. Workflow. Below, I'm including my workflow for getting models to do something as quickly as possible. It's the general strategy I've used for prototyping ideas like generating evaluations with LMs. Red teaming language models with language models, training language models with language feedback, etc. If this workflow doesn't work directly for some research task you're doing, for example interpretability, then it's at least an illustrative example of how to prioritize experiments in another setting. Try versions of an idea in this order, only skip a step if you have a very strong reason to do so. Here's a list of bullet points. Zero shot, high volume playgrounding your idea in a chat interface, for example, ChatGPT, Claude.ai, or Gemini. 1. Send 10 to 100 messages to various models to investigate the behavior in question or prototype your idea. For example, do language models have some form of situational awareness, or can language models be used to generate evaluation data? 2. Update the prompt based on the behavior or mistakes you see. For example, be very explicit about the behavior you want, include all of the context of what you're trying to do in the prompt. Include explicit instructions to guide the model away from common mistakes it makes, etc. There are some relevant guides from Anthropic and OpenAI on how to prompt models, which have helpful tips. Manual few-shot prompting, playgrounding in a chat interface. 1. Add 1 to 10 gold examples of what you want the model to do, and see how that improves the model's behavior on your task. Few-shot prompting. Find a source of labeled data for your task, and put as many of those examples into your prompt maybe even maxing out the context length for your model. Best of n, bon, sampling. Sample n times and pick the best sample according to a classifier, for example, prompted language model, or reward, preference model, PM. Generally improves the quality of samples, sometimes by quite a bit, and often gets comparable or better reward to RL, for example, in the WebGPT paper doesn't need too much hyperparameter tuning. Temperature of 1 and top P of 1 work reasonably well. Lower the temperature, for example 0.8, and top P, for example 0.95, if you need to get samples of higher quality. Supervised fine-tuning can take some hyperparameter tuning to get working well. The most important hyperparameters are typically learning rate, batch size, and number of epochs. OpenAI's fine-tuning API sets pretty good defaults and has tips for how to adjust them, and it's easy to use, so I'd usually recommend starting with that, and then switching to open-source models if needed after. Other tips. 1. Make sure your test loss goes below random chance. 
you can compute the test loss by evaluating the log prob of the uniform distribution over answers. For example, if you're doing two-way classification, the uniform distribution will give 50% probability to each answer choice, so the baseline loss will be log 0.5. 2. Look at both loss and accuracy. Sometimes, these will show different results, and for example test loss will start to get worse while accuracy gets better. RL, HF, generally a last resort, since it takes longer and more compute to run experiments and also requires more complicated code. That's the end of the list. Other practical tips. 1. If looking through lots of sampled text. A. Find some automatic, proxy metric to capture what you're looking for. Looking at raw samples is good, but hard if you'd otherwise need to look at a lot of samples for example to tune some sampling hyperparameter. B. Do a data atlas visualization, for example UMAP for dimensionality reduction, then make an interactive, hoverable plot with Plotly, something like this. 2. If sample quality isn't high enough, or the model is making too many mistakes, for example, on math or coding. A. Lower the temperature, for example 0, 0 0.6, or 0 0.8, or top P, for example, 0 0.8 or 0 0.95. B. Use best of N sampling, if you aren't already, with a higher N, 8 is alright, 100 is great. 3. Learn keyboard shortcuts. For basically everything you do. You should rarely touch your mouse or trackpad. Keyboard shortcuts help you not lose your flow if you for example need to switch tabs, jump to a new place in the codebase, etc. Pairing with people is a great way to pick up new tips and tricks here. 4. Always be thinking about what the best next experiment you run should be. When you show experimental results, in meetings or in Slack, you should also include discussion of your proposed next possible steps immediately after, and proposed prioritization. The best researchers are able to iterate between running experiments and deciding on the best next step independently. Getting in the practice of proposing the next experiment is helpful for a. Seeding the discussion on what we should do next. The person on the project will often have the most context on what makes sense to try from having looked at the experimental results most closely. B. Getting practice at figuring out what the next experiment is to run, and getting your other collaborators' feedback on how you're thinking around what experiment to run next could be improved. Heading. Reading research papers. 1. Generally not very important. Low value of information relative to running your own experiments. Exceptions. A. You're starting a new project, and need to learn what's been done versus not before, to know where to make a contribution. Also to pick up tips and tricks on the domain you're in, if there's actually relevant stuff to what you're working on. B. You're in the middle of a project, and a really relevant paper comes out, in which case you should read it closely. C. You're in an area of alignment where a lot of actually relevant prior work has been done, for example adversarial robustness, backdoors. 2. Where to find relevant papers. A. For being up to date in general, Twitter plus what people share on Slack plus what your collaborators, colleagues send you is a pretty good A to 20. For Twitter, you can follow some of the people I do, link, especially if any in particular stand out to you. Aaron Komatsuzaki and AK are pretty good sources of interesting LLM papers. 3. How to read research papers. A. For tangentially related research, just read until you have the main idea. Title plus abstract, figure 1, maybe the intro if it's poorly written and you still don't get what they did. 
Usually stop there. If reading more seems pretty helpful, then consider skimming the remaining tables of figures, or, in rare cases, if the paper seems very relevant, keep reading the paper like a normal person, until you get the main idea, skip related work. B. For directly related research to what you're doing, read the whole paper. From start to finish, maybe even checking the appendix where it seems relevant, from looking at the appendix references in the paper. A paper directly in your research area is usually pretty rare and a great gift which can give you a lot of tips for your next project. Heading. General mindset tips. 1. Every experiment is a win. What matters is whether or not you're learning about a problem. If we're learning, we're winning, even if the experiment didn't work. If you get weird or you're getting a lot of bits of information about what's going on. This mindset is both more accurate and sustainable than the alternative, rooting for every experiment to succeed, since you'll be more robust to the inevitable many cases where your experiment fails. There's almost always some interesting direction to pivot to, especially nowadays, when the most recent scale of models are so unexplored. If you're hitting diminishing returns on the project, then it's totally fine and great to switch projects. It's easy to get tunnel-visioned into thinking that the direction you're working on is the only direction out there, but you'll usually realize there's usually no dearth of exciting projects once you start chatting with other people about projects and brainstorming more generally. 2. You're almost never actually scooped. Junior researchers, including especially my past self, tend to look at work that other people have done and see it as closer to what they're actually doing. Especially in alignment, very few people, sadly, are actually working on the same problems as we are, so it's common for people to do something directionally related, for example chain of thought, but not directly related, with the same motivation, chain of thought faithfulness. 3. It's a win if you are scooped. In the rare case you are actually scooped, that's a win. Someone else did your research for you, and you can bootstrap off of what they did to answer newer, cooler, and even more frontier questions than before. Also, you'll get to compare your results to theirs, and there will almost certainly be interesting differences, for example, they looked at pre-trained LMs and you're looking at RLHF models. Similarities in the results can validate your results' uncertainties or often show different interesting, surprising things relative to what you've found. So it's often just a gift when someone else has also run the experiments you did. It's often the best way to get signal on what you're working on. Heading. Three modes of research. Most projects will involve some amount of each. 1. Exploratory phase. Beginning of a new project. A. Talk with various people on your team to get a sense of what the important problems to work on are, and which ones are tractable. For junior researchers working with someone more senior, take their guidance on the general direction and explore ideas at the medium, or low, level, for example, given that I'm working on X topic a direction, what other methods that seem likely to work best given prior work? B. Run some quick experiments to prototype various ideas, using the workflow described earlier. Anything you can run in a day or less, for example preferring faster to implement or run experiments. Write these up and get feedback to see how promising the idea is to keep pursuing, if there are lots of follow-up ideas, etc. C. Read skim papers to get a sense of what's been done in the areas you're thinking about. Talking with people can often be superior though, in that they'll often be able to point you to what's been done or related projects others are doing. 2. Execution phase. Vast majority of the time on a project. A. Generally aim to always have some experiment running, basically 
This doesn't always make sense, for example, if your experiments run super quickly. But if your experiments take greater than or equal to 8h, you should have experiments running at least 50% of the time. For example, running something overnight, looking at the results plus implementing a follow-up during the day. b. Tailor your experiments to take no longer than roughly 16h if you're running them frequently. This lets you run the following loop. 1. Run an experiment overnight. 2. Look at the results in the morning, figure out what to run next, implement it, and then go back to 1. See, anything longer than 16h makes it really hard to get quick feedback, and it's almost never worth it. Tips for reducing the runtime of your job. 1. If you're running on a model with slow latency, for example, GPT-4 or Llama 65B, think hard if there's a way to run it on a smaller model, for example GPT-3.5 or Llama 7B, or faster somehow. For example, using quantization during inference of fine-tuning, LoRa during fine-tuning. Using Adam instead of SGD to use less memory, fewer epochs but larger learning rates and smaller batch sizes, etc. 2. If you're running on the full test set of some datasets, try reducing the number of examples you're running on to 1k or even 300. 300 is the minimum for for example plotting scaling laws, and getting clean trends in some experiments we did for the inverse scaling prize, and I probably wouldn't recommend going lower if you want clean signal, 1k is pretty safe. 3. If you're running an RL experiment, try a best of n, bon, version, or at least try bon versions first, to de-risk your RL experiment. Bon will let you see what high reward samples look like, without requiring any training or fancy code. That will quickly tell you if there's anything wrong for example with your reward function. 4. Shorten your prompt, for example, by using fewer, but maybe more carefully chosen, few-shot examples, or by using shorter few-shot examples or potentially use a very short few-shot prompt, but with a larger n for bond sampling. 5. If you're sampling and using custom unusual stop sequences e tokens, make sure those stop sequences are getting hit when you sample, so you're not accidentally sampling more than you expect. 6. Generate fewer tokens, for example, by reducing your max number of tokens sampled, and or getting the model to do the task while needing to output a smaller number of tokens or biasing it with few-shot examples which indicate the model should give shorter responses. 3. Writing phase. For communication internally or externally. A. Internal communication. I'll often just start a doc as I'm running experiments, and then add info about the experimental results as they come in. For example various plots or stats, and my observations takeaways about the results. See this example of research log I've kept in the past. It's helpful to keep a record for myself, for discussing in weekly meetings, and for pointing others to. Depending on how detailed your experimental log is, you might want to make a more cleaned-up version for others' consumption. For example, weekly meetings. Probably fine to not spend too much time on this, and just spend time as a function of the number and amount of context that people reading it will have. b. External communication usually writing a paper for archive. This takes usually 2-4 plus weeks, and on the longer end if it's your first time, not just strictly because of the writing itself, but because you'll need to run more experiments to really clarify your results. For example, maybe you have the main results, but you'll realize that there are some missing experiments to really know what's going on or make the point you're trying to make clearly, and then you'll need to run those. See writing tips. See link in text for good ML paper writing tips. Main text includes mostly style or clarity tips, 
with links to more substantial recommendations for computer science paper writing at the bottom. I'd recommend it for anyone writing papers to a machine learning audience, and require it for any paper where I'm the main supervisor. If you want examples of papers that follow these guidelines, and general good style for ML accessible papers, you can read any of my most recent first author papers, where I try to incorporate all of the things I've learned about writing ML papers, in particular my paper on red teaming language models with language models. Heading. Work habits. 1. Hard work pays off a lot. A kind of very empirical, experimental work, that is typical of alignment work on large language models just benefits a lot from running as many experiments as you can, tinkering a lot, and trying lots of stuff, more so than being smart or knowledgeable in a lot of cases. Often, there are a lot of reasonable sounding ideas to try, and it's just actually unclear what will work, so you need to take a lot of shots on goal to find something that works. And for example the fifth or twentieth thing on the list of things to try is the first one that works. As a bonus, you get a lot better at figuring out what experiments to run, picking the right experiment to run the first time, etc., so there's a strong rich-get-richer effect here, which is especially important for junior researchers in getting momentum. Also, since more things work when you try more stuff, it's easier to stay motivated, since you minimize the amount of time that nothing's working. It also goes without saying that what matters is the number of productive hours you're spending, often in empirical research, basically how much time you're spending coding and running experiments, rather than the absolute number of hours, and it's often easier to optimize how productive your hours are over increasing the amount of time you're working. 2. Work sustainably. That said, it's also really, really important to make sure you're working sustainably. And this is a particular luxury of doing research as opposed to for example product engineering, no immediate deadlines. Lots of researchers burn out by working in unsustainable ways, also since the object-level work can be hard and goals ill-defined, or by developing an aversion to what they do, and it's really good to avoid this, also, burnout just sucks. I, and I think other researchers, often build up towards working more hours over the course of months or years, only increasing hours when it feels comfortable and great to do so. Heading. Machine Learning Engineering Foot Guns. 1. A single preference model, PM, score in isolation doesn't have a clear interpretation. PM scores are only trained to make sense when compared to other PM scores given the same context. If the context is different, it's unclear how to interpret the PM scores in comparison to each other. A. To make PM scores more comparable across different contexts, it's common to construct a reference response, I'm sorry, I can't help with that, and then use the difference between the PM score on the current response and the reference response. This measure effectively gets you something like a probability that the current response is better than the reference response. To get an actual probability, you should treat the PM score of the current response and reference response as a logit, and then take a softmax over both logits. This will lead to a calibrated probability, since this is how the PM is trained, and our PMs are good at producing calibrated probabilities. 2. The probabilities from LMs and PMs are calibrated, for PMs, you'll need to compare a response against a reference, but not for RLHF models. A. In general, don't try to interpret the actual raw, continuous probabilities from RLHF model output distributions. The rankings of tokens are meaningful, basically since it's the RLHF model's prediction of which token would get higher reward, but actual probabilities can be viewed as just an artifact of undertraining, if you're not using a KL penalty, at least. A fuller trained RLHF model should be deterministic, 
and probabilities are just a way for earlier checkpoints in RLHF to explore into higher reward policies. B. Example. When using an RLHF model to classify some text, the top, one predictions make sense to look at but not for example the average probabilities on the RLHF model. If you want to look at probabilities, use a prompted LM or PM, I typically find good results with a PM, or tune the temperature of the softmax used for computing the output distribution of your RLHF model, to calibrate the probabilities, as in Cardavath et al. 2022. Heading. Default norms for projects with me. Below are the default norms I follow for most external to anthropic projects I supervise, might be helpful for both new researchers and new researcher mentors for example for Seri Mats. I think they're reasonable defaults, especially if you're not sure where to start project norms or project management, wise. The working style here is particularly tailored towards junior collaborators, so if you're a more experienced collaborator, for example, two plus first or co-first author ML papers under your belt, feel free to work in a more independent manner than described below. Any of these are up for discussion for example if someone on the project thinks a different way of working together would work better, relative to what's described below. Here's a list of bullet points. Slack updates. We'll make a Slack channel for each project. Please put all messages that are project relevant in the project's Slack channel, we'll make one for each project, so that everyone on the project is on the same page about what's going on and what everyone's working on roughly daily updates. Aim to post an update every full day of work you've done, we can tone this down later in the project if it gets to be too much, but high bandwidth communication is generally quite helpful and worthwhile. In your update, please include. Last. What you worked on last and how that went. Next. What you plan to work on next. Blockers. Any blockers, fear uncertainty or doubt you have, or anything that's slowing you down. I'd encourage others on the project to check in on the updates, and chime in with comments if there's anything to say. I'll also try to check in, though I might not always respond, or respond immediately. It'll still be useful as a pulse check for me to skim the updates, as a quick way for me to see if there's anything I can help with, in terms of unblocking you, or to check that you're working on the most important stuff to be working on. Rationale as a research supervisor, I find it helpful for my reports and mentees to post frequent updates, for example, daily, on what they're up to in the project's Slack channel. I might not always respond, but I'll at least have more opportunity to catch if I think you're spending time on something that could be better spent elsewhere, and also generally have a better sense of if you're more blocked on something than I'd have anticipated, so I can either help you out or suggest that you triage some task. Otherwise, I'll mainly just have our weekly meeting time to give feedback to save you time. It's not a huge deal if you don't want to, but I might be able to help you better if you post daily updates. You could post stuff like what your plan for the day is, what you're focusing on, etc. For people who are more senior and independent on what they're working on, I'm happy to just stick to weekly meetings plus ad hoc Slack updates or DMs. Tag me in any messages, in this channel or in general, if you think I might be interested in seeing it, or if you're interested in getting my take. If there's an update that requires some background context, then it'd be helpful to include the complete relevant context for understanding the experiment. This is helpful since I'm involved in a lot of projects, so I've often forgotten the specifics of the experiment that we last discussed. Also, there are often others who were not present in the discussion but would be interested in understanding the experiment, so providing the full context is helpful for understanding what's going on. Often, 
missing one to two details on how the experiment was run is enough to not be able to interpret the experimental results, and then it might be another 12 plus hours before I next check your clarification. I'm not always immediately responsive on Slack, for example, may miss some messages, or take one to seven days to respond, but being able to read through messages about what's going on is still quite valuable, for example, for knowing if you're investing effort in something that's unnecessary, or knowing where I can help unblock you. I'm always excited to chat live, for example over video chat or in person, if there's something you'd like to get my feedback on. So feel free to book a meeting with me anytime on my calendar when it'd be helpful to chat if I'm not responsive enough. See below. Live discussion. Feel free to book a time on my calendar here to chat, basically anytime you think it'd be useful to chat. I share a Calendly link with my collaborators. Most people underbook ad hoc meetings. Please book a time to chat one-to-one -one every four weeks, even if there's nothing to discuss. It's helpful to have free-form time to discuss to catch unknown unknowns in how the project is going and other issues that might not come up in a group discussion context. Meeting norms. That's the end of the list. 1. Please default to presenting results during weekly meetings as a slideshow, for example, including all of the plots, tables, and text that you'd like to discuss. This helps to streamline the discussion significantly, minimize the amount of time that is needed to dig up some relevant results and also helps to focus on the most relevant points where you'd like feedback from me. I personally also find it much easier to pay attention to than for example purely verbal discussion of results or results, presented in a doc with a lot of text, though this probably varies a little by supervisor. A doc of results is probably the next best option, and can be fine if you prefer. 2. It helps to have a concrete agenda for what to discuss during meetings, can take as little as 5 to 10 minutes to think about before a meeting or up to for example one hour if it involves more explanation of plotting etc and the meeting is short or there's a lot to cover. In particular, it helps to have a. plots, tables, or other concrete results to show, for example, ideally in a Notion or Google Doc, so there are specific things to discuss, point at, and look at. Concrete results help to ground the discussion and give high enough information to people who are supervising the project to get useful feedback. Notice things that you might not have, etc. Helpful for catching things that talking over results out loud at a high level wouldn't catch. B. A concrete list of proposed, prioritized next steps, given your existing results and the overall project goal. Even if you're unsure of what to do next, it's easier for others at the meeting to discriminate, rank a proposed list of steps, than to generate ideas for what next steps to take, especially given that they don't have as much context as you do on the project. C. A concrete list of questions and places where it'd be helpful to get input from others at the meeting. D. A sense of how long to spend discussing each point above, so that everything gets discussed without running over time. It's common to spend disproportionately more time on points brought up early on in a meeting, since there's a feeling of more time, which leaves much less time, or no time, for other important discussion points. Alternatively, bring the most important points up for discussion at the start of a meeting. Three. I, and I think many other research supervisors, generally leave it to the main people actively working on the project, running experiments to determine what to discuss and present, since they have the most context on what needs to be discussed. I'll sometimes come with specific questions to the meeting, but by default I won't. 4. If you have a conflict for a meeting, like a one-to-one, -one, please try to cancel or reschedule the calendar invite in advance, as far in advance as you can. For meetings that are in the morning in my time zone, 
please try to cancel the previous day, so I can get some extra sleep, smiley face. Otherwise, it's pretty low cost to cancel a meeting last minute, since I'll just get the time back. 5. Feel free to book a time on my calendar anytime you think there's something that'd be helpful to chat about. Feel free to book liberally, and I'll let you know if the frequency is too high. That's basically never happened though, and the usual failure mode is that people underbook meetings, especially 1:1s. 6. General rules for scheduling meetings and invites. A. Make them modifiable by anyone on the invite. B. Have a Google Meet link attached. C. Have a specific where to meet location, for example booking a physical room if we're in the same office space. D. Get Google Meet Premium so meetings don't end at 1h. E. Picture-in-picture mode, with Google Meet lets you see people's faces while sharing your screen or being on other tabs, which is helpful for being able to see people's reactions while presenting results or sharing screen. F. Generally get comfortable with different screen sharing options, for example, sharing tab only, full window, joining in presentation mode, etc., so that if there are any hiccups, you can quickly fix any issues that come up. G. A bunch of the above can be automatic defaults, so it can be a one-time change. Here's a list of bullet points. Meeting with collaborators. When you're full-time on the project, you should probably be having at least one other meeting with other collaborators per week to sync and get feedback, outside of the full group meeting where I'll be there. It's not strictly necessary, and will depend on the preferences of other collaborators on the project, but it will probably help ensure you're getting the guidance you need on the project. Overcommunication. Overcommunicating with me is really helpful, especially if I'm supervising you on a project. Otherwise, I'll try to spend a lot of effort, often unsuccessfully, trying to figure out whether you're happy, where you're stuck, how I can help, etc. I think I'm good at helping to come up with solutions or unblock people if I know something's going wrong, but find doing that hard when I have to guess at what some of the potential problems are. If you think there's something I can improve at, communicating with me ASAP about that would be super helpful and appreciated, so I can improve our working relationship ASAP. Usually other people have the same thing in mind as you do too. Feedback. Please absolutely give me, or other project supervisors, feedback ASAP if you feel that anything is suboptimal. You feel like you're struggling to do your best work for whatever reason, for example, not enough collaboration. Having some trouble debugging some kind of issue, feeling stuck on conceptual issues, etc. You're having issues with a collaborator. You think I could be supporting you better in some way. Rationale. Many project supervisors are supervising many projects at once, or working on their own projects full-time. Especially if we don't have a regular one-to-one, it'll be crucial for you to bring up issues during the weekly group meeting, where it's an issue that can be discussed in the context of others, or otherwise privately over DM or booking a one-to-one time on my calendar. This will be the primary way we can nip issues in the bud to help you have a great experience, and it relies on, over, communication on your part. Direct messages. I'd highly encourage you to DM me if anything ever comes up that's time-sensitive or private that is at all worth discussing. Taking agency. I'd highly encourage you to take agency and organize whatever you think will be helpful for you, co-working, discussion groups stand-ups, etc. Other great advice on how to run research meetings. Learning from mentorship. Mastery is a great book for understanding how to learn from mentors. Close mentorship is maybe the fastest path to become an expert in a domain, and there's a lot of evidence to support this. 
The main thing that's important is building a strong mental model of what your mentor would say, for example, next steps on a project, feedback on your results, what they'd critique. That's the end of the list. This article was narrated by Type 3 Audio for Less Wrong. It was first published on February 29, 2024. To report an issue or give feedback on this narration, go to t3a.is.